And so you've got to make a decision. Uh, maybe there, it's pressure at work. And um, maybe it's uh, people just digging their heels in. I, I don't want to hear any more about this. And when someone says that to me, I don't continue. Because we're never here to transgress the freedom of a person's will. And if someone doesn't want to hear the gospel anymore, it, it saddens me. But I'm not going to keep, you know, turning up the ratchet because it won't do much good. So sometimes the spiritual thing is to just stop and go on to somebody else that wants to hear. And uh, that's happened in my life. In fact, what, one of the dramatic stories in, in my own life, and it turned out great, but my college roommate was a friend since junior high. And uh, so we went through, we were in the same grade, went through junior high school together, went through high school together. And then in college, when I joined uh, the SAE fraternity, Rich was already a member, and we ended up being roommates. And he was my roommate during the time that in my junior year, I committed my life to Christ. In fact, he's the guy that uh, the morning after I prayed a prayer and gave my life to the Lord, that I came in the room the next morning and he was in there shaving. And he was part of the Bible study that we had in the fraternity. He would come to that. And I remember I walked in, I said, well, Rich, I finally did it. And he said, did what? I said, last night I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And he looked at me through the mirror, and he said, I'll watch. And, um, I mean, he really watched. One day I came in the room, and we had always done this. He'd borrow, you know, my shampoo, and I'd borrow his toothpaste and all this. One afternoon I came in the room, and there was a pack of juicy fruit sitting on my desk, on his desk. It was his. So I took a stick and chewed it. And later on I came back and there was a little tab on the, on the gum saying, inasmuch as you have done this to the least of these, you've done it unto me. <laughs> and he expected perfection. And you know, it was just weird. Four months earlier, that would have never happened. And he was really watching. And then it turned out that uh, after graduation, he went in the service, went to Germany with the army. He was commissioned in the, uh, what do you call him, trained in Fort Benning, Georgia. The, uh, no, the Green, not Green Beret, what's the other? The, well, it was jump school. He, he was a uh, airborne. airborne, okay, jump pilot or whatever, jump, jump school, I guess, it, I don't know, anyway. And... Uh, so he ended up in Germany, married a lovely German girl, and then they moved back and we both ended up in Chicago. So we'd get together for dinner every now and then, and I'd try to talk to him about the Lord. And, oh, golly, you know, it's just nothing. And it seemed, the, have you ever done this? The more I talked, the worse it got. And one day I said to Marilyn, you know what? I'm through talking to him. I think I'm doing more harm than good. And so basically I decided that we'd get together for dinner and I wouldn't talk about the Lord. We'd just get together for dinner. So about, a, I suppose, three or four weeks after that, one day it was noon and the phone rang and it was Rich. And by then he, he was working for a huge advertising agency in downtown Chicago. So I called up and he said, uh, I just wanted to call you and tell you that today I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I about fell over and I said, what on earth happened? He said, I got fired. And he said, at lunch, I walked out on State Street, and, and I had nowhere to go but to God. 
And he said, I just wanted to call and tell you and to thank you for, you know, talking to me all these years. And then, of course, it was time to try to bring his wife to an understanding of Christ. And thank God she came. And uh, today, he went on to be vice president of Spiegel, you know, the catalog company. He's vice president of marketing, made piles of money, and took an early retirement from the business world and started an organization called Affordable Medicines for Africa, AFMA, and uh, he, he gets a dollar a year because he's got enough to make it. And uh, what he does is take companies like Johnson & Johnson and Bristol-Myers, when they bring out a new drug, the old one is passe. The old one's probably 95% as good as the new one. But because they got a better one, the other one is passe. And so he has them donate those drugs to him, to his, his foundation, and they get a tax write-off, and then he takes those drugs, which are perfectly good, and distributes, distributes them in the name of Jesus Christ to poor people throughout Africa. So, you know, sometimes God closes doors, and we need to know when to hold them, and we need to know when to fold them. And uh, I honestly think if I'd have pressed ahead, and just kept hammering on him. I don't think he'd ever have come through. But finally it was time to let the Lord take over and for me to shut up, and then it got done. So remember that, file that away. You need to know sometimes when to fold them. Okay? Now, uh, let's move on to verse eight of uh, uh, Acts 14. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and he walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying, the Lyconian, in, in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now these were people into the Greek mythology. And, Barna, and Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. They thought they were Greek gods. They didn't think they were mortal men. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their garments, and they ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things that are in them who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, oh, I love this, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. You know the verse, the rain falls on the just and the unjust? I used to think that that meant that bad things happen to the just people just like they do to the unbelievers. It's just the opposite. The rain falling on the just and the unjust says to the unjust, God loves you as much as he loves the just. And he will provide you with every good thing. Therefore, turn to him. 
And this is exactly what Paul's argument is here. He did good to us. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitude from sacrificing to them. And uh, the, the lesson here is you don't deify the preacher. You don't deify the preacher. And uh, th there are other times in the scripture. In fact, an embarrassing one is in the book of Revelation. Here's the Apostle John. Now, thank God he wrote it, so nobody's ratting on him. But twice in the book of, Re of Revelation, if you remember, St. John fell down and worshipped an angel. And the angel had to get after him for it. And uh, what a great lesson. We, you know, do we follow the bishop? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the longer I'm orthodox, the clearer I am. The, the key is, is just doing what the bishop says. But in doing that, we don't deify him. He makes no claim to be perfect or sinless or uh, without fault. But he's the father the Lord has placed over us. In the parish, we follow the lead of the priest. Why? Because he's the shepherd the Lord has placed over us. Uh, you know, we're not anything other than mere men. But we're men who are called by God and gifted by God to give leadership in the church. And uh, here, when they saw the miracles that St. Paul did, they really thought they were gods. And I'm happy to announce that, that uh, we are men of the same nature as all of you. One other thing I'd like to say in that regard. <clears throat> in the Western understanding of authority, the bishop is externally the head of the church. In other words, he rules over the church. In the Eastern understanding of authority, the bishop leads from within the church. He's part of the community. He is not to be put on a pedestal, but he's, he is here in the midst of us. And really, that's the model of Christ himself in the incarnation. Um, Emmanuel in the Old Testament, the word means God with us. God among us. And uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, though he's king of kings, leads from within us rather than somehow externally over us. Uh, even the architecture of the church speaks of this. You go to New York City, one of the most beautiful churches in the world is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And you walk in the back door and it's a city block to the altar. I I'm serious. It's a city block. You walk in an average Orthodox church, and you're never far from the altar. The church here it is essentially in the round, and uh, it's octagonal. And the altar is in the midst, whereas in Western understanding, the altar is always way out there at the other end. And having grown up in a Western understanding of Christianity, Having grown up in a church where the altar was always way far away, I would say to people, you know, God just seems so distant to me. And the fact is, the architecture spoke of distance. And uh, once I gave my life to Christ, I realized that it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. He lives in the midst of his people. And uh, that's what comes through in the Eastern Church.
So we don't deify the priest, we don't deify the messenger, but rather we see them as men who are called to lead us and to, and to shepherd us. Okay, then let's read starting in verse 19. And uh, here we again prepare for some opposition. Uh, the honeymoon doesn't last long. Now we're back. <laughs> Instead of people thinking we're God, now there's trouble again. In verse 19, then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And uh, the there is Lystra. Now, and yeah, this is wild. They send emissaries in to mess up the apostles in other towns. They're not just content to run them out of their town. Now they send people to other towns where they are and badmouth them there. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And uh, so again, it was a run at it, but, but opposition. Okay, verse, starting then in verse 21. And I've entitled this, Evangelism is Not a One-Time Event. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Somehow in modern evangelism, it tends to be a one-shot deal, a one-hit thing. So you move into town, preach the gospel, and just kind of move on and let everything just you know, settle where it will. That's not the method of the apostles. They went into town, they were bold, and sometimes, you know, they did let the chips fall where they may, but it was never seen as a one-time thing. They went back through, and look what they did in the next verse, in verse 21. Uh, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, which is likely a reference to the liturgy, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went, back to, they went down to Attila. In other words, they, they placed in order the things that, that they had done. And uh, they ordained out elders in all of the churches. So uh, evangelism is way more than just preaching and leaving town. Evangelism is building churches. Seeable, locatable, discernible churches. And somehow that's uh, what a lot of modern American uh, evangelism has missed out on. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. In other words, they started in Antioch on this journey, and they ended up in Antioch. And look at the joy in verses 27 and 28. And now when they had come, when they had come and gathered the church together, that is the church in Antioch, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now just imagine the joy of this. Two years ago, one Sunday morning, you were in the divine liturgy, 
And the Holy Spirit spoke, and send out Saul and Barnabas to the work for which I have appointed them. You were part of that group that witnessed the laying on of hands and the prayer over them as they were sent forth. And now, after some great successes and some really hard times, stonings, Paul once left for dead, uh, the crowd loving him, the crowd hating him, just the whole panorama of response. Now they come back to their home church. What an what a incredible day this must have been. And gathered the church together, and, you, and they said, you know what? Not only did God do mighty things, but for the first time in all of recorded history, the gospel is open to the Gentiles. Now it's not just for, for Israel anymore, but the Lamb of God has come for the whole world. And so this first missionary journey, uh, just it, it breaks brand new ground. And uh, if it hadn't, we wouldn't be here tonight, other than Father Bernstein. He might be here. <laughs> but the rest of us would not be here. So God came to his own. And many of his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. And they reported in Antioch that day how God had opened the door to the Gentiles to believe. Well, let's do a few questions, and then we will dismiss and pick up again tomorrow as we talk about the gospel reaching Europe. Anybody want to ask anything or add anything or... And I'll repeat the question so that it'll go on the tape. Okay? Oh, the, the church? Yeah, the three, she said, could you elaborate on a little bit on what the church should be? And I, I said, seeable, locatable, discernible, and that, that list can go on and on. Where I'm coming from is this. Many of us who are converts to Orthodoxy came out of a background where the church was just invisible. And, you know, there's a sense in which that's true. We don't know everybody that's in and everybody that's out. But, but the, the thrust of that teaching is, is all it is, is, is an invisible fellowship of people that love Christ. And... Uh, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to be gathered. There's no order to the thing. You know, any old way that you like is just fine. And the scriptures just don't teach that. They teach that the church is very visible. I mean, just think through the epistles of St. Paul. St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Well, what's that? Well, that's the church that's in Rome. St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the church that's in Ephesus. St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, the church in the area of Galatia. Uh, St. Paul's letter 1 and 2 to Corinth. It's a city. To Thessaloniki, Thessalonians, it's a city. And in these churches, it wasn't just the Holy Spirit kind of moving amongst the people and, you know, we're all just brothers and sisters and nobody's really in charge except God. And that sounds so darn spiritual and American Christianity, especially in the 70s, but there's still a hangover from it today. Uh, just this kind of, this, it's a spiritual amoeba. It just kind of floats around. And, and uh, you know, in, in our town, 
uh, there's three or four major evangelical churches, and the crowd just moves from one to the other based on who the preacher is. And they'll all be at, you know, XYZ Baptist until over at the free church, this guy comes in that's a spellbinder, and then everybody kind of moves their membership over there, and then at the, the vineyard, which, by the way, they just closed, the vineyard there finally said, you know what, we know we're not the church, and they closed the doors. And we've got a couple of their families as catechumens in our parish now. Thank God, at least they were honest. And um, there's this, it's just this, it's this loosey-goosey, or as one guy said, sloppy agape. <laughs> but in the Bible, in the New Testament, they ordained elders in the church, pastors, priests. The word is presbyter in the Greek. It literally means the bearded one. And that's why traditionally many Orthodox priests have worn beards. Uh, it was a mark of manhood, a mark of maturity. And uh, so there were elders, there were priests and pastors in the churches. There were deacons in the churches. I was reading today again in, in Titus, the qualifications for the bishop. You got bishops in the New Testament church. So uh, what, what I mean by that is the church, though it is spiritual, and, uh, you know, as, as Bishop Maximus used to say to us, I can tell you where the church is. I can't always tell you where it isn't. Because we don't claim to believe that the only true Christians in all the world are Orthodox. Uh, you know, we pray the prayer to the Holy Spirit, O Heavenly King, Comfort of the Spirit of Truth, who are in most places and fills all some things, you know, in, in all places and fills all things. I mean, if that weren't true, most of us wouldn't be here tonight. The Holy Spirit came and got us and brought us home. So that's what I meant by that. It's seeable, it's locatable, it's discernible, and the leadership is in place, and uh, it's definite. It's definite. It's not simply invisible. It's present. Yes? Okay, I'm not quite hearing. At the very beginning, uh -huh. you touched the subject about divine liturgy being repetitive. Right. What if you tell someone who has come to your church and they tell you, oh, I don't get anything out of it. It's the same thing every Sunday. What, what kind of answer okay. do you give that person? Good question. What do you tell a person that visits and says, you know, I don't get anything out of it because it's essentially the same thing Sunday after Sunday? Often I'll say what I did, and that is everybody's pretty well the same every Sunday. Uh, some years ago, on one of the visits up here, I was asked to preach in one of the uh, Assembly of God churches. Father Mark had gotten to know the pastor. And the Assembly of God, of course, is a denomination that's just barely 100 years old. It's a Pentecostal denomination that you know, emphasizes the more charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I hadn't been in a Pentecostal church probably in 25 or 30 years. The last time I was in one was in Wheaton, Illinois, when Marilyn and I were in school at Wheaton College. And I was with Campus Crusade. And we walked in that morning. One of our board members and his wife wanted us to visit there. So I had never been in a Pentecostal church. And so somewhere during the first part of the service, the pastor said, this morning, we're very pleased to, to have uh, Brother Peter Gilquist here. He's from Campus Crusade, and 
Brother Gilchrist, I'd like you to stand right now and lead us in prayer. So I stood up and began to pray, and the folks started to talk in tongues, and I was freaked. <laughs> so I finished whatever sentence I was on, and I said, and in Jesus' name, amen, and sat down. And uh, so anyway, that was, that was my Pentecostal church experience. 25 years later, I'm asked to speak up here. Do you know the service was exactly the same? And I'll tell you what it was. An opening prayer, 25 minutes of singing. The only thing that changed is they didn't have songbooks anymore. Now they got a movie screen. It's right up here, and all the words are on the movie screen. Many of the songs were the same. Some of them were songs that I hadn't heard before, but that they were Bible songs. They were taken, you know, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. A nice song. I like that song. And then I got to preach for 45 minutes. <laughs> and I talked to him that day on what the assembly of God was like in the first century. Because the word assembly, <laughs> the word assembly is used either four or five times in 1 Corinthians 11, and we established that the assembly of God was Eucharistic. But the thing that impressed me was that the order of the service was the same. Now this is a church that will fight you to the death for spontaneity. The only time it was spontaneous was the first service they ever held. From then on, <laughs> from then on, it's patterned after that. So my argument is everybody's got liturgy. Why not go with the one that was there at the start? The one that was revealed to the Old Testament leaders and to the new and the one that has, has come down to us to this day. And uh, all of life, it would be my second point, all of life is liturgical. You drive the same way to work. Now, I know Glen Highway, there's not a lot of choices, but essentially, <laughs> you drive the same way to work every day. You get there about the same time. You leave about the same time. You do roughly the same thing every day. You break at noon for lunch. And uh, you come home, and there's dinner and time with the kids. You've got your routine. And then you get up the next morning, and we've been married 42 years, and every morning Marilyn says, Honey, do you want coffee this morning? Well, <laughs> and we laugh about that. That's just what you say when you get up. Do you want, of course, I mean, I've been doing this 42 years. And uh, with the exception of Sunday, the answer is yes. I'd love coffee this morning. And, you know, our, our marriage is liturgical. In fact, after 42 years, you don't want a whole lot of new stuff going on. <laughs> so life is liturgical. Why not do God's liturgy rather than cook some, something up in a back room somewhere and... Uh, Striking out, you're reinventing the wheel and striking out on your own. And by the way, I know our kids sometimes say, well, gee, you know, it just goes in one ear, not the other. Do you know Baptist kids say that? Lutheran kids say that? Presbyterian kids say that? Catholic, a Pentecostal? Everybody says that. That's just not orthodox. <clears throat> one of the greatest humorists of our time was Johnny Carson. Incredibly funny. Do you know the show was the same every night, and that's what made it funny? 
Then Ed McMahon would come out and say, here's Johnny every night. And they were millionaires. <laughs> and then I hold in my hand the, the last envelope. Nothing new, but it was hilarious. Somehow the devil has conned us into thinking that in Christianity, it's all got it's it's got to be an arcade. Even an arcade is liturgical, by the way. <laughs> this is not entertainment tonight. It's worship. We set our minds to worship. We seek the things that are above, not the things on the earth. And I think. The church has known this all along. I mean, what is it that we sing at the great entrance? Let us lay aside what? All earthly cares for crying out loud. Don't think about the roast. You know, don't think about who the one o'clock NFL game is or how the stock market did last week. We're not here to, you can do that, but not here. Here we lay all that stuff aside. And we worship the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The word liturgy means the work of the people. And it's work. For those who serve and those who sing, you know, it's work. But it's a glorious work. God has revealed it to the church, how he used to be worshipped. And if we had time, we'd do that tonight. Yeah. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over now. Yes, Mary Sue. Um, I think for us, rather than to try to explain or convince, is just to pray that when they go in the service, they will feel the presence of God and they'll be blessed. And that begins to happen. Right, and that happens a lot. Let, let me help you with something. We are liturgical. And in liturgy, there's litanies. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy for the peace of the whole world, for the welfare of the holy churches. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Let me give you a three-step litany to say when you bring a guest. Okay, your guest, it's best to bring them, not to, just to invite them, to bring them. You know, about 10% of the people you invite will come to church. 100% of the people you pick up and bring <laughs> will come to church. Okay, I try to do a little, little catechism if it's, if it's appropriate. Uh, you know, this morning you'll maybe see some things that uh, are different to you. These are very old things and, and aren't done in some churches anymore. For example, when you walk in, you'll see some pictures of Christ and his mother and St. John the Baptist and, in our case, St. John the Evangelist. And um, you'll see the resurrection or the transfiguration of Christ above. And so th these are called icons. It's just the Greek word for image or picture. And uh, uh, we have them because we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And these icons tell us that this is true. You, you'll smell incense. And, of course, the psalmist says, Let our prayer arise to you, Lord, like incense. We sing that at Vespers. And incense is a, is a picture of our prayers rising to God. And it's also a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And then 
you'll see people do this. And we call that just the sign of the cross. You know, God forbid that I should glory in anything save the cross of Jesus Christ. And these three fingers represent the Trinity. These are the two natures in Christ. And you essentially hold the gospel in your hand. And at the invocation of the Holy Trinity, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we, we sign ourselves with the cross. You don't have to do any of that. I'm just saying it so that you'll know what's being done and why it's being done. Okay, then in the service, really important, if you can't stand with them, if you're in the choir, have them stand next to somebody that can have the service book out there and help them through it because they, they will get lost as to what's going on. The service book really helps. Okay, now this litany. After it's over, you head downstairs for coffee hour. Three questions. What did you think of the service this morning? You know, there's no right answer to that question. It's wide open. Gee, you know, I, I was kind of confused. There was so much I've never seen. You know, I'm a Baptist. I've never seen this. Okay, sec or I loved it. I loved it. And then it'll be everything in between that. <clears throat> Second question. Do you have any questions? Now, that's a gutsy question because everybody's afraid that their guest will ask them something they can't answer. That almost never happens. The question will not be, can you explain to me the hypostatic union? You will not get that. <laughs> uh, it may be, well, why does the priest wear that gown? Okay, that's a good question. Or um, uh, why do people kiss those pictures? Okay, and you can explain that we, we venerate, we honor these people. Or the answer might be, you know what, that's a good question. I, I don't know, but let me get, let me get back to you. I'm, I'll find out the answer to that question. Okay, number one, how did you enjoy the service? Number two, do you have any questions? Thirdly, probably the most important question, can I introduce you to our priest? Because if these folks are going to come into the church, it will be he that catechizes them. It'll be he that baptizes and or chrismates them. It'll be he who pastors them. It'll be he who hears their first confession. And uh, it's really important that they be tied into the shepherd. So how did you enjoy the service? And if they say, I hated it, gee, you know, I didn't like it the first time either. That's the gospel truth. I didn't. I said to Marilyn, I'm going to buy their doctrine because they're right. They can keep their worship. I can't do that. <laughs> Seriously. Isn't that true, Ms. Bear? So I don't even, if they say I don't like it, it just doesn't even phase me a bit. It, right after we were received, about in the first year after we were received, I was in three of our churches as a matter of my work in missions and evangelism. I remember one of them was Jackson, Mississippi. I don't remember what the other two were. And I took a survey. How many of you liked the divine liturgy the first time you experienced it? Raise your hand. It was 10%. 90% either didn't like it or they didn't know what to do with it. 10% liked it. You know what happened to that 10%? They became orthodox. You know what happened to the 90%? They became orthodox. It just doesn't matter whether you like it the first time, I don't think. <laughs> they all became orthodox. So I, if someone doesn't like it, it just doesn't worry me a bit. 
Now, they might not want to come back next Sunday, but they're going to come if Hopko's here or if Bishop Ware is here or if Father John Braun is here or some Frederica or somebody. You know, you don't have to just invite them Sunday morning. You can come back and invite them to something different than the divine liturgy. So, how did you enjoy the service? Do you have any questions? Can I introduce you to our priest? Father Gordon. First, the first way you phrased the first question I liked better. You said, what did you think of the service? Mm-hmm. Not how did you enjoy it. How did you enjoy it? Okay, what did you think of the service? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's more wide open. How did you enjoy it assumes they enjoyed it. Boy, <laughs> I really liked it. <laughs> Uh, I've enjoyed as much of this as I can stand. (laughs) But you know, that gets it going. And uh, just remember those three things. Because sometimes you're tongue-tied, aren't you? After your guest comes, your coffee hour, and you you don't know whether to whistle or wind your watch or go blind. What did you think of service? Any questions? Can I introduce you to our priest? Let's do one or two more, and then we'll we'll finish for the night. Yes. Father Peter, what are a few of the indicators that you look for as a church builder and planter to know that the, that the field is ready, or that you're this is a great place for a new church? Mm, boy, how do I know that this is a great place for a new church? I don't know that you can give a definitive answer. There are things that I look for. Uh, The last missionary journey I was on was about a week and a half ago. Marilyn and I drove to a city I'd never been to, Pleasanton, California. It's east of Oakland, and I assumed it was urban urban sprawl. It's an old, 100-year-old city, a beautiful old downtown. And uh, the sprawl, of course, is on the perimeter of the city. There's a guy up there who was brought up Greek Orthodox in a church that was mainly in Greek. And he was clueless as to what was going on. So essentially in high school he drifted away in college. Uh, He was contacted by some evangelical group and he gave his life to Christ and became an evangelical uh, minister and youth uh, youth minister and counselor. And during that period of his life married a lovely girl. They've got one child and another on the way. And when it came time to get married, how many of you have seen Big Fat Greek Wedding? It's great, okay? She was, she was the guy, so to speak. He was the Greek, and she was the non-Greek, evangelical Christian. And when it got time to be married, and this is a wonderful thing about orthodoxy, even if you don't get it, there's a holding power there. And George just knew, if I'm going to be married, it's got to be in the Orthodox Church. Thank God the Greek priest he went to had the same exact experience he did. And uh, Father Tom of Ramos brought George back into the Orthodox Church. And his poor bride walked down the aisle, had was, you know, what was going on. And George is back and he's on fire. And so um, he's got a group of men he meets with every week, some of whom are Orthodox, most of whom aren't. And uh, in that group is a former, a wonderful old Protestant minister. He's 75 years old. He has, he has been chrismated already. And uh, the, the chief of the fire department is in the group. And 
uh, a home builder is in there. And uh, they want a church that's in English, that understands America as it is today, and is committed to outreach. So we went up and met with them. And, and you know, the fathers talk about various virtues and things that, that indicate that God is at work. And one of those virtues, and it's the Sunday of Zacchaeus, is desire. These people have desire to be orthodox. They have desire to have a church and not just rattle around. And half of them aren't even orthodox yet. And so we're going to work with them and see if something can't happen here. And we're going to start out with a, uh, with a, a series of inquirers classes. Uh, the neighboring priests are going to help us out with that. Father Kevin Shearer is one of those priests. Father Patrick Jackson is one of those priests and others that are in the area. And then we'll go from there to catechism and look for the day that they will become uh, an Orthodox parish in a, in a town where there's no Orthodox church, Pleasanton, California. So I look for desire. Um, I look for need. You know, uh, uh, if I were calling the shots, and I don't, my strategy would be to, to build churches in every major city where there's no English-speaking Orthodox church, where there's a major college campus. We've done a lot of that. But that's not the only strategy we use. We've done it now in Madison, Wisconsin. Father Pat Kinder is just doing an A-plus job. We've got a small mission going in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We've begun a church that's up and running in Bloomington, Indiana, University of Indiana. And uh, Father Gordon is just uh, uh, finishing up work on a new mission at the home of Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. We need to go to Athens, Ohio. There's no Orthodox church there uh, where the University of Ohio is. But that's a place, that's a kind of thing I look for. And uh, then you've got situations where, and, and it's happened some with Episcopal churches. The Episcopal church is in a, uh, just an uh, awful state of mind right now because just in one generation, they've moved from believing the gospel, from believing the Ten Commandments, from believing that the scriptures are inspired by God to this... Uh, Postmodern, anything goes. And uh, there's a lot of priests that are disenfranchised and a ton of lay people. And we've received a number of former Episcopal churches where the pastor has studied and discovered orthodoxy, has taught it to his people, and then contacts us and says, you know what, we think we want to be orthodox. It's not just Episcopal, but a lot of them are Episcopal. And then we go in and serve them and bring them uh, into the church. So those are some of the ways. And, uh, I, yeah, I really do pray that shortly there'll be another new mission here. Um, because any healthy marriage reproduces, unless there's some extenuating problem. Any healthy church reproduces. And uh, you've already done two, Homer and Wasilla. And maybe it's about time now to crank up on number three. So hopefully what we cover in these sessions will help you as we look uh, at the work of the Apostle Paul. Father Mark. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.